0: You can turn for the uh, second-to-last time to the book of James. Uh, we'll be looking at James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. Uh, saving the last verse for uh, next Sunday morning. Uh, James 5, verses 13 to 18. Uh, Paul or James has been in a discussion of having patience in suffering, and considering the Lord's coming, the Lord's character, His compassion and mercy, to encourage the saints. And now he's going to move to giving specific instructions uh, to responding to God in different seasons of life. So let's consider God's word, James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. This is God's holy word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Amen. May the Lord bless us as we consider and look to and give our attention to his word together. It was mentioned this morning that we do have a, a couple couples uh, getting married this summer, which is very exciting. And uh, if you remember that stage, maybe back when you were engaged, if you were at that point, I often do a sort of premarital counseling. And one thing that you're always told in premarital counseling is that, you know, don't expect it to be all easy. Of course, there's going to be ups and downs, good times and bad times. Uh, the, the feelings will wane. But what holds fast is your commitment, your covenant commitment to one another, which um, is often said it's for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And the covenant relationship holds fast in all the ups and downs in life. But then you'll be told further that if you want to do well at navigating those ups and downs within that covenant relationship what's essential is that you learn how to communicate well with one another to share your heart to listen and to respond appropriately and the strong communication within that covenant relationship helps make for a flourishing and joyful marriage now In many ways, the same thing could be said about our relationship with God. God has bound himself to us in covenant. We're said to be married to the Lord Jesus Christ. And similarly, that covenant relationship is for better or worse. It's for richer, poorer, in sickness and in health. And we want to learn to walk closely with God in both the good times and the bad times. To stay close to Him. And the way we stay close, nurturing that relationship with God, is through communication with Him. The communication with God we call prayer, we call worship. God speaks to us in His Word, we speak to Him in our prayers. And our text gives us instructions on how we ought to communicate with God in both good times and bad the better, or the worse, the sick, the healthy. And we need to learn these sorts of communication skills if we are to walk closely with God in all seasons of life. Uh, This message is entitled, The Rhythm of Prayer. And we need to learn those rhythms of prayer, of speaking to God, that will help carry us through the various uh, times and seasons of the Christian life. So let's consider uh, these together. Let's look at verse 13. James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Simple. Is anyone suffering? We know many of them were suffering. We've heard again and again that this was a church where people had fled as... Um, religious refugees from the city of Jerusalem where they were being persecuted. So they're fleeing without hardly anything. We also know in this book that they're being oppressed by the landowners of the region. And so they're in many difficult circumstances, not to mention the talk of quarrels and fightings within the church itself. These were a suffering people, uh, but that's not only for them. Uh, This world, uh, suffering is knit into the fabric of a fallen world. It is a part, um, and it interpenetrates every aspect of life. We all experience suffering in different ways, and in many of the same ways. And the difficulty in times of suffering is that suffering very often seems random. It seems like it can come out of nowhere, that it feels totally unprovoked and unfair. And furthermore, it often seems really uncontrollable and unknowable. And at times, unsolvable. You have to say, I have no idea how this is going to come to a resolution. And it feels like there's sometimes absolutely nothing you can do. Well, James gives us something to do. He says, Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. This isn't just a nice sentiment, well, you know, offer up some prayers. This is an important aspect of navigating through suffering well. In suffering, we are to pray. Now, James doesn't tell us what this sort of prayer might look like, but we can learn from Scripture how to pray in suffering. Especially, we can learn from the pattern of the Psalms, as we even read tonight, what it looks like to appropriately pray to God in our suffering. This is not something most of us are actually very good at. And we can learn patterns. And I just want to, um, just for your help, uh, give you a general pattern of what most psalms and suffering look like. There's three components to prayer and suffering that I hope we can um, find helpful. They are lamentation, confession, and petition. Lamentation, confession, and petition. And you see this all throughout the psalms. Uh, the psalmist will lament his sufferings. It's not just stiff upper lip, don't say anything. It is good and right to grieve suffering because sufferings, these things are a product of sin. They are to be grieved and mourned over. It is right to, us, to feel grieved in times of suffering. And we're called to pour out our hearts to God, to tell him how we're feeling, how we're feeling affected, how we are cast down. And you might think, well, God already knows. God also already knows our sins, yet we're still called to confess our sins to God. In the same way, we can lament our sufferings before God, and this is healthy and helpful for the Christian. Secondly, confession, and not confessing sin here, but confessing God's character and his promise. This is another significant element in psalms that are prayers and suffering, is to confess, but God, you are good. You are gracious, you've been faithful to your people. You redeemed your people out of Egypt. You've redeemed my life, therefore I can trust you again. To be confessing to God who he is and what he's done uh, steals our heart. It encourages us and grants us that necessary strength. So we lament our sufferings, we confess God's strong character and his promises, and thirdly, we petition God we, work, we request his help and strength. And petitioning God's help in suffering is more than just asking that the suffering would stop. Again, we can learn from the psalmists uh, the various ways we can ask for God's help. Um, I just looked at uh, Psalm 143, and there's about a, dov- a dozen specific requests David makes in Psalm 143. And I just want to tell them to you, here are some things he is asking God's help for that we can learn from. He says, God... Hear my prayer, don't enter into judgment with me, answer me, show me your face, let me hear of your love, help me to know which way to go, deliver me, teach me your will, let your spirit lead me, preserve my life, bring my soul out of trouble." Uh, Just a a well-rounded batch of requests spread out throughout that psalm. Because we don't just request the physical help, but we're also requesting God to help our souls, to strengthen our minds, to comfort us, to work in us in our sufferings. Lamentation, confession, and petition. And we're generally not skilled at processing our pain before God. It's not something we're adept at in our culture, and if we don't learn the skill of this sort of prayer and suffering, we either end up bottling it all up inside, only to have it uh, pop out later, or we end up lashing out at others. And practically, there's nothing more I can commend than immersing yourself in the book of Psalms, allowing the language of this prayer book to become your language in prayer, to be reading the Psalms every day, even if you're not in trial, so that you'll be equipped with the language of God for how to process your sufferings. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. So simple, yet so full. But then he says the opposite. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone cheerful? For better or worse. These are the good times. He says, let him sing praise. It's really just let him sing. Uh, Let him solo. You might recognize the word psalm there. Um, songs of praise and thanksgiving are implied. And really, it is just as necessary to praise God in the good times as it is to pray to God in the difficult times. Because both prayerlessness and suffering and praiselessness in joy lead us away from God, right? Consider this, A someone who is suffering and doesn't process it with God ends up becoming Um, embittered about how God has done them poorly. Uh, The prayerlessness and suffering can lead to a hard-heartedness that turns away from God saying, how has God forgotten me? I'll forget him. But praiselessness in the good leads to a a pride of look at what my hands have accomplished and what I have made of myself. Look at all this good that I have done. And it leads also to a different kind of hard-heartedness that forgets God and walks away from him. Wasn't this the greater danger to the people of Israel who, whenever they had safety, rest from enemies, blessings and abundance, they forgot God and wandered away from him? That's why it's so important that we learn how to praise and thank God in the cheerful times, in the good times. We need to be people of praise. And like all people, we are called to give God praise for all that he's done for us. The common goodness he's showed to us all in creation, every time we taste good food, share a laugh, have good relationships with others, can enjoy the beauty of the created world, God deserves praise and thanks for that. Uh, You could argue that the worst sin of unbelievers, according to Romans 1, is not uh, their their immorality or other things, But it says that though they experience God's goodness, they don't praise Him or give Him thanks. That is, they break the first commandment and don't acknowledge God as the giver of all good gifts. And for us as believers, we have a double duty to praise God because not only have we experienced His goodness in creation, but we've also experienced His goodness in redemption. That He has pulled us out of the miry clay and set our feet on a rock. And so to be people that both experience God's goodness every day, but at every moment are held in Christ, how could we then not be people of constant praise? And that's what we're called to in the book of Psalms. See, Psalm 33.1 says that praise befits the upright. It's so, so fitting, like a hand in a glove, that upright people are praising people, and people that praise continually. Psalm 34.1 that David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 145, one to two, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Praise is so healthy for us, so healthy. Praise humbles us and depletes our egos. It connects us to the transcendent God and lifts our souls to a higher view of life where we're lost in God. Praise and thanks keeps us from becoming insular, conceited, entitled, crabby, discontented people. We need to be people of praise. And perhaps the best way to express our praise and thanks to God is in song. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing. Music is a wonderful way to give God praise. And here's why music is so particularly particularly fitting for praise. It's because God deserves the praises of our whole self. He deserves the praises of our mind, but he also deserves the praises of our hearts. And singing is singing songs of praise is wonderful because the words help us to praise God with our minds. They help direct our minds to the wonderful truths of who God is and what he's done. But then the music helps in a similar way to direct our hearts to proper feelings towards God. So the words help us to think about God rightly, and then fitting music helps us to feel about God rightly. So our minds should be lifted up in praises, but also our hearts and affections should be lifted up in praises. That is the gift God has given us in music, to help us direct both mind and heart to God in a display of the praise that he so richly deserves. We're called to give wholehearted praise to God. And together, in this for better or for worse, to pray and to praise, this is the rhythm of the Christian life. Every day is is a pendulum swinging as we experience the good and the bad of prayers and praises. Prayer and praise are like the two feet with which we um, learn to dance to the rhythms of grace, where every, um, every suffering provokes us to prayer, and every pleasure provokes us to praise. That's what it is to live the Christian life. And the most compelling Christians are the ones you see who have um, most naturally learned the skill of making prayer and praise just the fabric of their life. Where just they so naturally are led to prayer. They're so naturally led to praise. And that's a beautiful way to live. Where every pain provokes prayer, every pleasure provokes praise. That's the dance of the Christian life, this rhythm of prayer. And it's something we want to be learning together. And James is instructing us, and he's spoken of praying and suffering generally. But he wants to zoom in now on a particular form of suffering, namely uh, the, the trials of physical illness. Right? This is a significant um, type of suffering we experience. And think of how much more so for the people of this day before modern medicine. Think of just in your own life, think of anything you've had solved by modern medicine. Anything from um, a filling, corrective lenses, antibiotics, knee surgery, all things that would have been totally unattainable back 2,000 years ago. Um, every ailment we would have would be something we would be living with if our body was not able to deal with it in itself. Probably the vast majority of people in this congregation lived with some sort of significant um, uh, debilitation in their life. And so he fittingly addresses the sick. He says, look at verse 14, "'Is anyone among you sick?' Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now this word for sick, heres anyone sick, it says, um, it means weak, really. And it's it's, um, envisioning largely someone who's like a shut-in, someone who's too weak to even come to church, who needs to call the elders to themselves. But we can broaden it to people that are struggling with some sort of consistent illness. And um, he says to them, to call for the elders of the church, these people who are sick. And sickness is a particularly difficult form of suffering, and even though we have modern medicine, we do still have um, untreatable pains, undiagnosable illnesses, debilitating injuries. And these trials can be lonely as we battle our own mind, and the pain can become all-consuming. And James commends us to a particular action in this sort of physical suffering. He says to call... For the elders of the church so there's a double duty here there's a duty for the ill person and a duty for the elders the duty for the person here who is ill is to call the elders of the church to come pray for them this person is not to assume that everybody already knows what they deal with they're not to presume that the elders will first reach out to them um, and to test them to see whether they've really uh, noticed them what they're going through it says no they are to call for the elders uh, and this takes humility this takes vulnerability to put yourself in a position to say, hey, would you come and pray with me? Um, it's a fitting posture to be in, to be requesting the help of others in that way. Uh, we're not called to bear our suffering alone, but we're called to invite others in. The responsibility of the ill person is to make the call, to call the elders. Now, the response of the elders here, it says, is to pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So it says to pray over him. This might be alluding to someone who's in their sickbed and they are praying literally over them, or it may be referring to to the laying on of hands, which is a symbol for prayer. They're to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And you probably think, oh, that's kind of weird. I don't know about this anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. What's that all about? Well, there's a, there's, there's a few views that have been talked about in time for that. Uh, some people have tried to say that perhaps this anointing with oil was uh, for medicinal purposes, right? It's sort of word and deed. Um, they're going to help out practically as well as spiritually. Uh, there's a lot of difficulties with that view. It doesn't fit the way these terms, um, anointing with oil, are used in Scripture. We don't see it being used in Scripture for medicinal purposes. Um, so, so, so that seems unlikely, Um, The the Roman Catholic view perhaps takes it too far the other way, and they turn this into a sacrament, uh, which they call a last rites or extreme unction, where they anoint people about to die with oil, um, hoping it'll cleanse their former sins. We see that that is going too far beyond the text. And perhaps a middle way is um, not that it's medicinal, not that it's sacramental, but that it's symbolic. I think there's a symbolic significance of the anointing with oil here. Now, we see anointing with oil uh, for people in the Old Testament who were commissioned to specific offices. Prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed with oil to symbolize that they were set apart to a special and particular task before God, something others weren't. Uh, They were anointed for a particular ministry, being set apart. Um, A consecration was the symbolism. And I think this is a really beautiful symbol to give someone who is ill what it is it is to set them apart um, as someone who we say is deserving of god's special help or it's to set them apart as one who's being called to a particular ministry of suffering Uh, in our suffering we have a particular way to glorify god that we don't in the good times we cling to him in, in a unique way and to, in a sense, uh, just be called to that, to be set apart, say, you're going to be going through a difficult season, and you have an opportunity to serve God in that and bless the Lord. It's a beautiful, ennobling act of care. That's what I think is going on with this anointing with oil. An act of ennobling care, um, symbolizing something similar to the laying on of hands, that we are showing care and blessing you in this time. And, As a church member, it is your right and privilege to call the elders of the church to come and pray for you or a family member who is ill. Now, it may not be every single one of the elders. They may or may not lay hands. They may or may not use physical oil. But the intention and act of the heart is still to bless and to set apart, to pray with and for you, um, to call you into this special season of suffering. But still, with the faith and hope that God may heal, that God may intervene on your behalf. And we can be assured that when we obey God's word, he will act on our behalf as he wills. Because it continues in verse 15 to say that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So it says the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. This isn't most likely referring to that final salvation where we will be saved and raised up in the resurrection. These terms are used most often in the Gospels to refer to when Jesus healed people. They were saved and raised up. This is saying the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. Notice it doesn't say that every person who's prayed for will be raised up, but what it is saying is that when God does intervene in a special way to raise up a sick person, that it will have been through the means of faith-filled prayer. God works his sovereign will by means, or what our confession calls secondary causes. And God works through prayers at times to bring healing in extraordinary ways. Now, most often, God's healing comes through the ordinary means, through doctors and medicine and our own amazing bodies. But God does sometimes work in extraordinary means to bring about healings that are unexpected and surprising. Now, what we believe in the Reformed tradition is not that um, people can be healers or have a special gift of healing to be able to walk around and say, hey, I am the healer. Come to me. I will heal you. No, But we still do believe that God can work when and how he pleases. We don't want to limit a sovereign God. And if God would be pleased to work miraculously, to heal in a surprising way, that is God's right and prerogative. Now, we we don't demand it, but we believe in faith that God is able. God is able. God delights to bring about healing, whether immediate or slow, through means, whether medical means, physical means, or spiritual means of prayer. Um, As I was reading one commentator, Daniel Doriani, and so Daniel Doriani, he is uh, as reformed as reformed gets. He's uh, taught at Covenant, uh, studied at Westminster. He's, He's firmly in our camp, but he writes about when he was first studying this passage in the ministry, and he and the elders at the church really decided hey, this is something we believe and want to do, to go pray over the sick, anoint them with oil. Uh, there was a man who was uh, mostly immobilized, struggling physically. And for the first time, they went and they're like, okay, we're gonna do this. Uh, they prayed over him, anointed him. And uh, Daniel Doriani said that um, he felt this strong sense that God was healing this person. He, he said he almost felt like an energy in his hand. And he didn't say anything. He's like, this isn't supposed to happen to reformed people. And he just said in his heart, he knew, God healed this person. He was rejoicing in his heart. And, and the next day, the man ran up the stairs to him at church, um, totally uh, freed from what was ailing him. And he said it never happened again. It never, God never se- um, seems to intervene miraculously to heal someone in the rest of his ministry to that extent. But we believe God can, and God might, and so we pray in faith. He said also, in spite of this testimony of the Lord, Uh, they had a daughter later on that had just terrible rashes where she was scratching herself so terribly and had to always be bundled up. And uh, it was told him by his wife, you know, we should ask the elders to come pray for our daughter. And he was hesitant, right? It's like, I don't know if I want to ask them to come pray, but he eventually humbled himself. He asked them to come pray for his daughter. And it was not a miraculous healing, but from that point on, Her rash recovered significantly, 90, 95% better, and she never was debilitated by it again. And he wondered, why did I have so little faith? Why, when it came to my own family, was I so hesitant to be vulnerable and to ask the elders to come and pray? We pray in faith, and we trust that when we use God's means, we follow God's instructions in James, uh, God will bless that. Um, And God will use the ordinary, the extraordinary to work his sovereign will. And there's actually an explicit link here to the spiritual as well as the physical. You might have noticed it says, if he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven, which also seems odd to us. Uh, This text, it's not saying that because the elders prayed for him, his sins will be forgiven. You'll notice in the very next verse, it says, therefore, confess your sins. This forgiveness is coming after a confession, Um, the confession is implied along with the calling of the elders to pray. If he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Implied, therefore confess your sins. The confession leads to the forgiveness. As 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. What's also being implied here is that perhaps this illness was due to sin. Now, we have to be careful here because not all illnesses are due to sin. In John 9, people asked whether this blind man, uh, whether it was him or his parents who sinned that made him blind, and Jesus said neither. um, It was that God might be glorified. So sickness is not always tied to sin, but it also, it's not never tied to sin. For 1 Corinthians 11 says that the reason many of you are weak and are sick and have died is because they took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, a specific sin against the third commandment. And so when we come into a time of physical trial and calamity, it's a fitting time to examine our hearts, to see whether we are walking in any form of um, lack and any unrepentant sin. Now, that doesn't mean we'll necessarily find it. You might come away with a clean conscience. Like David saying, God, my hands are clean um, in your sight. There is nothing, or as Paul said, I know of nothing against myself. That is an unrepentant sin I'm walking in. And I trust that would often be the case. But it's still a fitting time to examine our hearts. And he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray to one another that you may be healed. Our God forgives confessors. And he says to confess to one another. Now again, there's been error in this to, um, in the Roman Catholic Church, turn this into that whole rite of confession, that you're to go to a priest and confess all your sins and they tell you how to be absolved of them. Um, It says to confess to one another. And I think the implication here is that we are confessing to one another the sins we have committed against one another. This letter is really concerned with um, arguments and divisions and tension in relationships, um, anger and slander against one another. And we ought to confess our sins uh, against one another to one another. We confess all our sins to God because all sins are against God, but we confess our sins particularly to the people we've sinned against, asking for their forgiveness. And it's interesting, too, that he says to confess to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This is really interesting. Um, Imagine if we gained a new practice of when we confessed, apologized to someone, and asked them to forgive us. We also added, and would you pray for me? What a humble act. Uh, What an interesting thing to maybe try to implement in your family is to say, hey, ask your siblings forgiveness and then ask them to pray for you. Um, this happens actually a number of times in Scripture. Job's friends are told um, to ask Job to pray for them. Um, Abimelech, when he has uh, been doing wrong things with Abraham's wife, he says, Ask Abraham to pray for you. Uh, so, to not only humble ourselves in asking for forgiveness, but also asking for prayers. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Again, there might very well be a link between our sin and confession and relationships and our physical healing. Now this is a, a, a difficult section of scripture for many of us, but we do well to heed James' instructions and to seek to put into practice what he has told us. Um, to relate to God, to pray to God in the good times and the bad, and in sickness and in health. And what unifies all these different stages of life together is this thought of prayer. It's all about going to God in prayer, It's not nice sentiments, but relational communication, calling on the power and presence of Almighty God. And he says in verse 16, We should have this faith because the prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working. That is, the prayer of a person who's been made righteous before God in Christ and who's living uprightly by the Spirit. Their prayers are powerful and effective. Because God works by prayer. It's one of the m- major means he uses. And prayer does change things because it is a God-ordained means that God uses to work in the world. He says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer is powerful to work what? To work what we will? No, it's to work what God will. And when we trust that God is working powerfully in prayer, he may not be working doing the thing we exactly want Often God's greatest desire for us in our prayers is simply that we will know him and walk closely with him and be made more like him. And that is a wonderful answer in all our prayers. Prayer is first and foremost about our relationship with God. And yet, our prayers can do more than we know. He says, Elijah, Consider Elijah, that great prophet in verse 17. He was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, the point James is making is that Elijah wasn't some special angel or um, miraculous person, that, but that he was a guy with a nature like ours. He was a normal human, and God answered a mighty prayer from this normal human. Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, get up and jump into the ocean. Jump into Lake Michigan, if you will. Um, God can work powerfully through our prayers. And so we want to be careful to not think so little of God, to be so cautious in our prayers, to think, oh, that could never happen. God would never do that. God can work when and how he will because he's sovereign. Sovereign. And so let's pray big prayers and let's pray them fervently. We pray in these evening services often for the evangelization of the whole world, of the work of all the ministers of the gospel to be effectual. Those are big prayers that we can pray in faith. Prayers not just for the pastors or really holy people, but for ordinary people like you and me. And how amazing is it that we can actually do this stuff, we can pray and really believe that God hears us and cares. Proverbs says that the prayer of the wicked is an abomination to God. And naturally, we would be rightly um, afraid like Esther, who thought, because of the king's power and ability to destroy, how could I go and bring my request to the king? And yet, we can come boldly to the throne of grace because of Jesus Christ. Jesus has attained for us the permanent ear of our heavenly Father. And by his life and his death, um, atoning for our sins, giving us his righteousness, rising to the right hand of God, he intercedes for us such that we can now come in his name and bring these prayers to God, knowing that he does hear us for Jesus' sake. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, because the reason we can pray at all is because Jesus prays for us. There's actually a sense in which you could say that really the great blessing of salvation is that we now have the right to pray. We've been given relational communicative access to almighty God. And that's come at the cost of the blood of the son of God. Jesus died so that you and I could pray. Jesus died so that you and I could have a heavenly father who loves us and hears us and desires to give us good gifts better than the best gift any of you parents have ever wanted to give your children. We have the ear of the King of Kings because we're brothers with the son of his love, the son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we can know that in the bad times, God hears us. In the good times, God hears us. In our sickness, God hears us. He sees, he knows, he cares, and he works by prayer. So let's excitedly learn the rhythms of prayer, where the sufferings lead us to petition God's help, where the joys lead us to praise God, where we're willing to confess to one another, to pray for one another, to invite others in. This is the rhythm of the Christian life. Uh, Let's learn how to do this dance together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to pray to you even now. Though you would rightly cast us out for our boldness to speak to you, yet Our prayers come purified by Christ. You see us in your son and you hear us for his sake. Lord, would we not spurn or despise the privilege of prayer? Lord, would we um, lament and repent for our prayerlessness and for our thanklessness? God, keep us from the pride that thinks we have accomplished the good in our life. Lord, keep us from the despair that keeps us away from you but encourage us in our relationship that we would be quick to go to the throne of grace, that we would know you love us and look to you frequently, praise you often, requesting your help at all times, that we would learn, as Paul said, to pray continually. Lord, lead us in this, help us by our spirit to grow and know and enjoy you more as we commune with our maker. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake, amen.